Well, good morning. It's a great time for us to be in the house of the Lord, be with God's people, serve a glorious Christ. I'm thankful that my wife Carol is back. She came back late, late Thursday night, early Friday morning. So we're just starting to get back to a normal routine again. We had the privilege of taking care of her mother for a few weeks in Belgium, and that care will be ongoing, but there's family there that can surround her and, and keep it going. So I'm thankful for your prayers for her as she ministered to the family there, and also for myself as we were stewards. The French have an old proverb that says, none is so blind as he who will not see. It speaks of the condition one can have whereby evidence is right in front of a person, but his heart is such that he refuses to see what is obvious to all. It's really a manifestation of sin that can so affect the human heart that one becomes rendered unable even to see or to hear or to understand what is happening. And so the person that is in that condition just simply wants to challenge and to confront. That was the situation that the Lord Jesus Christ was facing. As we've seen growing opposition to him and to his ministry and to his messianic uh, events over the past several chapters, he has faced a people who just are hardened in heart. The scribes and the Pharisees and many in the crowds who had followed Jesus had seen the truth, had seen the good works, had heard what he had to say, had seen how he interacted, but were always on the lookout for ways that they could stop him, confront him, criticize him. They simply wanted him to go away. And that opposition would only grow as Jesus would continue in his ministry moving forward. And it's for that reason, as we saw last week, as we began our study in Matthew 13, that Jesus is going to use parables to speak to the crowds. We saw last week, as we introduced this chapter, that Matthew has gathered together a bunch of the important parables that Jesus taught to explain the nature of the kingdom of heaven and the reaction of people to the preaching of the word of God. And so last week we saw the parable of the sower, where there were different reactions to that word as each heart responded in a different way to the word of God. The challenge that was given was that it's only those consecrated hearts who are the good soil that is pleasing to the Lord and able to produce a harvest to his honor and glory. Well, we saw last week that we, we saw the sermon of the sower given, and then we jumped over a section to see this, the parable of the sower explained. And so today we're going to go into that in-between section, Matthew 13, verses 10 to 17, where Jesus is going to have a time of personal teaching with his disciples, whereby he will reveal to them the reason why he speaks in parables. In doing so, he's going to show that there is divine governance, there is divine guidance, that Jesus is truly God in the flesh. He has control. And I think there's much for us to learn as we go through this challenging passage this morning. So I invite you to stand as we read our passage for this morning that we will study together. Matthew 13, verses 10 to 17. And the inspired word of God says, Then the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. 
But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Please be seated. And let us pray. Father, in the presence of your holiness and before the authority of your word, we bow now and invite you to be our teacher. You've given us a hard word here, Father, about ears and hearts and eyes, and we know that unless God the Holy Spirit is at work, we will not be able to see or hear or understand as you command. So be our teacher this morning by the power of your spirit that we might understand what you have given, that we might receive it as the blessing for which it was sent, that we might be changed because we have heard from the living God, and that we might walk away knowing that this word is true, and our God is worthy of all of our faith. So it's to that end we pray as we study your word, in Jesus' name, amen. I encourage you to follow along in your sermon outline as we go through this passage this morning. Our first major point is the purpose of parables, the purpose of parables. At this time, I'd like to say good morning to those of you joining us online. We're sorry you couldn't be here to watch the baptism and be with us physically, but we know you're with us spiritually. We're thankful for the opportunity that we can connect with you this way. And so we invite you to join with us in the study of Matthew 13 as God guides us. The purpose of parables. And the text says, Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? Now Jesus, as we've seen, has already introduced the parable of the sower. He's been speaking to the crowds. He's explained the meaning of this important parable, showing the differences and responses to the preaching of God's word. And we know from what we saw earlier in Matthew 13 that he has already been teaching them many things in parables. So perhaps he's been going on for some time. You've probably noticed by now as we go through the gospel according to Matthew that there are three general crowds that Matthew talks about and that Jesus has to deal with. There are the disciples, the ones that he has called, and the ones that are following him. There are the crowds who ebb and flow as they hear about what he's doing and wherever he is going. And we have the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the people. And if you'll notice as you look in your copy of God's Word in verse 10 that the shift, the focus is shifting from the public discourse of teaching the crowds to a private interaction with the disciples who come to Jesus with a question. And we see it even in the language, the disciples and to them. They're seeking a private explanation of what is happening in a very public event. Now, it might be the case that the disciples were even already with him on the boat. Or maybe they waited till afterward to get an explanation. 
There's no change of location mentioned here, and so we might surmise that they were already with him on the boat. But in any case, they give us a good example to follow. The disciples go to Jesus, and they ask him a question. That's not a bad solution to what we face in life, whether it's a question or a worry or a concern or a prayer request or whatever it might be. Whatever it is, we can take it to Jesus and ask him. And so they ask the question, why do you speak to them in parables? And Jesus will begin to respond, and the first thing he will say is to reveal and to hide, to reveal and to hide. Now, last week, as we saw the introduction to a parable, we said they could be used in many different forms. They could be a, a riddle or a story, a proverb, a wordplay. In fact, there's other types of parables as well. But what they are given for is to reveal the level of understanding that people have or don't have concerning the things of God. Parables, in order to be properly understood, require a measure of thinking, of reflection, of interaction with the text to understand. And oftentimes, when people will not understand unless it is explained to them. We have an example in the Old Testament of a proverb that was used. The prophet Nathan went to the King David to confront him over his sin with Bathsheba and her husband Uriah. And it became clear that David didn't fully understand the parable or the story that was used until Nathan made it clear and said, you are the man, you did that. And it was when the parable was explained that it took root in David's heart that led to a great repentance on his part before God. So we shouldn't be surprised that even the disciples here might not understand a parable. And so they come and say, why are you speaking in the parables? And he gives them an answer. Says to you, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. Notice that Jesus is not shying away again from the purpose of his teaching. He's not shying away from the fact that he is in control of what he gives and what he doesn't give, what he reveals and what he hides. This is something very similar to what we saw in Matthew chapter 11. We must simply understand that God is in control of all the situations. And sometimes we have a, a level of anxiety or angst or frustration or misunderstanding when we think about God being in control and we are not. But I think we need to keep in mind that it is God who is the creator, it is God who is the sustainer, and God who is the only truly free being in the whole universe. Not tarnished in any way by sin or limitation, He's free to do as he wills in all of creation. And Jesus affirms that he has control. He says, I teach to reveal to some, and I teach to hide from others. And he's going to let this group to whom he is speaking here know what a blessing it is for them to be among those to whom he reveals these secrets. Notice the emphasis on the words, to you. These are the ones, of course, that he has called, that he has commanded, that he has chosen. They have come to him. They are following him. And we are told that this is not something that they discovered on their own. This is not something that they have earned. This is not something that they have merited. We are simply told that it was given to them. And we realize then that to be given something from God is a, it's an act of grace. It's an act of mercy. It's an act of love. It's an act of kindness. In fact, we can't know anything about salvation unless the Lord reveals it to us, for salvation is of the Lord. And he alone will get all the glory. He alone will get all the boasting. He alone will get all the praise for all that he does in the salvation of those he saves. 
But even still here, as I've said, there's so much mercy and grace. And mercy and grace, he, he creates. And in mercy and grace, he calls. And in mercy and grace, he sustains. And in mercy and grace, he opens eyes. And he opens ears. And he opens hearts. So that those to whom he is revealing these secrets are able to understand. And just to make it even clearer, the way the language is used here is in the passive tense, but it's what theologians refer to as a divine passive. It means it's not something that has been done by people. It's not their initiative. It's not their decision. It is something that God has revealed to them. It means that there are those who are the recipients of the grace and mercy and revelation of God, but they are not the initiators of them. We see phrases like, to you has been given, to, you, to them it has not been given. To the one who has, more will be given. To the one who has little, more will be taken away. God is the one who's in charge of the process all throughout to show us that we're just dependent upon him and that ultimately salvation will just be this glorious outpouring of praise for what God has done in the lives of his people. To this group that Jesus is speaking now, they would be the ones referred to in John 15 where Jesus said, you didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. And it is to these very same ones then that he will reveal the secrets of the kingdom. The word here for secrets in the original language is the word mysterion. You might hear the word mystery and that would be okay. That's a, not a bad translation. Mystery, those things that we don't know. Uh, but I think secrets here is a little bit better translation because secrets are those things that we cannot know until somebody tells us. There's things about God, his works, his ways, his wonders, his actions that we simply cannot know unless and until he reveals them to us. Now, to give you an idea of how this word was used, you might write in your notes on the side, Daniel 2, 18 and 19, for in what we call the, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament in chapter 2, verses 18 and 19, this same word is used to call God the revealer of secrets or the revealer of mysteries. It's the same word that the Apostle Paul uses when in several of his epistles he talks about the mysteries of faith or the secrets of faith, or those things that were not known before but now are known because God has chosen to reveal them and make them known. And so as we look at the fact that now Jesus is having this private dialogue with these disciples, differentiating between them and to you, we, we understand the meaning of the word secret. Now what, what are the secrets that have been revealed? To you, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. What are some of those secrets? Well, certainly they would have to do about the nature of the kingdom of heaven. How does one enter that kingdom? What type of kingdom is it? Who is its king? And one thing Jesus made clear is that this kingdom is not a military kingdom or a political kingdom or an economic one. It is not the overthrowing of the Romans to set the people free from Roman oppression. It is a spiritual kingdom that overthrows the tyranny of sin and Satan and the sting of death. It's a different type of kingdom that has a different type of king who doesn't come militarily but who comes as a humble servant king to show us how to live in a humble way before God and before man. Jesus, who came from a lowly town in a far-off outpost in the Roman Empire, is the king of this kingdom, not a kingdom that emphasizes might or power or the accumulation of things or the pleasures of the world, 
but a kingdom that emphasizes the righteousness of God, the joy of holiness, of eternal life, of what we celebrated here this morning, the forgiveness of sins, of the new birth and the spirit of God. Jesus is a humble king, a servant king, who will lead the greatest revolution in the history of the world, one that continues to impact the world to our day. And aren't we so glad that we've heard of it, that we've entered into it by grace through faith. And that kingdom has now come. It is now here. It's only been inaugurated, but it has truly come in Jesus. We enter the kingdom of God through faith in Jesus Christ. It is a kingdom that is growing. Its righteousness is revealing itself as the gospel goes out into more and more places and penetrates more tribes and families and nations and tongues and more places of darkness with light. But it's still just a kingdom that is inaugurated. It is a kingdom that will only be fully consummated with all of the blessings of overcoming all that was lost in Adam. All of that will happen in the return of Jesus Christ. But his opponents didn't want this type of kingdom. They didn't want a faith. They couldn't understand. Therefore, they wouldn't understand the secrets of the kingdom. We're told in other places in Matthew they were too attracted to money or power or traditions or influence. And here Jesus was teaching them about service and humility and sacrifice and true treasures from the Father. So to them, the Pharisees and those who opposed them, the scribes and many in the crowd, to them it has not been given. That fits with the first purpose of parables. Under the sovereign grace of God, manifested through his Son, he has the right to reveal to some and to hide from others because he is in control. But there's another reason why, why parables are given, and that is to bless and to take away. To bless and to take away. And so the text goes on and says, For the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. What an amazing statement. For the one who has, more will be given. Think of what a privilege it is to be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ with all that we have, all that we have received, and we're promised that we can receive even more, greater knowledge, greater understanding, greater privilege, greater wisdom, greater fruitfulness. And notice the words that Jesus uses, and he will have an abundance. Isn't that just like our God, a God who gives abundantly to his children there's no lack or limit or rationing or price controls with our God. He just gives with abundance because he loves to give with abundance because he's a giver. He has a giving heart, a lavish heart. And so if we have the privilege of being in Christ, we've already been given so much. And yet there is still so much more that we can know and gain and learn and acquire. More spiritual truth that we can grow into. More spiritual wisdom to guide ourselves. More spiritual fruit that will glorify the Lord. As we walk with the Lord, there is abundant blessings and grace and fellowship and hope and truth. So friends, listen to what Jesus is promising here. To we who have had the privilege of hearing and seeing and understanding the blessings of the kingdom of heaven. And as we walk with him, the more we respond to him, the more we obey him, the more we learn his word, the more we will grow and the more fruitful our lives will be. 
and the dark days that sometimes comes with living in this world, let that encourage you. To the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. And as you face the challenges of this world and you're in Christ, you can say, I have a God who gives in abundance to his children of spiritual truth, of wisdom, of hope, of peace. But, but, the one who has, even what he has, will be taken away. Do you hear the language of judgment here? Even with what little understanding the religious leaders of their day had, the more they say no to Jesus, the more they refuse Jesus, the harder their hearts become, the more clouded their thinking becomes, the more recalcitrant their attitude becomes. To him who does not have, even as he desires to see, no, I'm sorry, to one who does not have, even if he is able to see with his physical eyes and hear with his physical ears, he doesn't care about the things of God. He doesn't desire them. So we need to be careful not to let our hearts grow hardened and grow cold because we have a God who is ready to bless, but he's also ready to judge and to harden. And all that he does, he does justly according to his just character. So they've been given to hide and to reveal to bless and to give away and to confirm the hardened heart. So the text says, that is why I speak to them in parables because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear nor do they understand. Those in Christ understand because God is working in and through them to reveal truth to them. And they can only understand because of that revelation, because of that divineness, but there's also the other side of it, the human responsibility. Those not in Christ do not desire to hear, do not desire to see, do not desire to understand. They even block their eyes and their ears. They use their human will and their understanding to reject God and his ways. But in all of this, God will not be threatened or thwarted in his sovereign purposes. They will prevail. And this purpose of God's purpose, uh, the purposes of God's revelation will come to fruition both in hiding and in to reveal, which is divine, his divine prerogative. There's a mystery there. We know enough to know that if God says for us to do something, we're to do it. We're to joyfully obey and enter into it. We also know enough to know that there's certain things we just won't understand. And so we throw ourselves at the feet of God and say, you know all things well. You see all things from beginning to end. And so we just take what Jesus is saying here as he affirms the purpose of parables. Next we see Isaiah and this evil generation. So now we get to a shocking declaration. Jesus speaking to the disciples of the generation that is in front of him says, Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. Now we're going to look at the rest of these verses here in, in this section of chapter 13 in just a moment. But think of what Jesus is saying. Seeing they do not see, hearing they do not hear, understanding they yet do not understand. They want their own way of doing things. They cannot understand what is true because they reject the one who alone can help them to understand. And so God holds them in their blindness. 
because they do not desire to see. In the words of the Australian theologian Leon Morris, he said, the word of God is always effective. It either brings enlightenment or it brings judgment. Now we're going to do something just a little different than what we have a habit of doing here. Jesus is referring to a passage in Isaiah. And so we're going to take the time to look at that passage in Isaiah in a little more detail. And so I encourage you, if you have a copy of God's Word in front of you, to turn to Isaiah chapter 6. We're going to first begin by looking at the call of Isaiah. Now I'm asking you to turn to your own copy of God's Word because I will not have them on the screen. I want you to pick up on some things on your own as we read through. So we have the call of Isaiah. God is calling Isaiah to preach. So I'm going to read the first seven verses of the prophet Isaiah, chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Isaiah finds himself in the presence of God. And he recognizes straight away who he is. God is holy. And he is not. I wonder when the last time it was that we had a glimpse of the holiness of God and all of his splendor and majesty and glory and that he is glory, full of glory and we are not. Oh, in his glorious presence, there's no playing games with sin. In his holy presence, we don't mess around with our own desires. We want simply to know what it is he would have us do. And as Isaiah is in the presence of the Holy One, he knows that he is a sinner. He just immediately confesses, woe is me. I have a dirty mouth, and I live among peoples who have dirty mouths. He's not even worthy to look at God, much less speak to him or speak for him. He's just undone. And then God performs an amazing act of grace, amazing display of purity, of forgiveness. He sends an angel to cleanse Isaiah's mouth with a burning coal and prepare him for ministry. And imagine as that burning coal is touching his lips, how Isaiah learns in a real way the pain that sin brings and the pain that is required for forgiveness. And then think of the beauty of Jesus Christ. He took the pain and the suffering of our sin upon himself. Imagine having your lips burned with a hot coal. And then God says, you are now clean 
they atone for. But this whole encounter continues, and so we see in verse 8, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. And so we will look at Isaiah answering the call after he's just had this dramatic encounter with the Holy One. And what are the consequences of the call? Isaiah says, I'll go. You've cleansed me. I'll go. You've pardoned me. But he needs to know what to say. So let's read verses 9 and 10. And he said to me, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn and be healed. What do I say, O Lord? Preach. You'll hear, but you won't hear. You'll see, but you won't see. You won't understand. Imagine what it is to preach to an audience that is hard-hearted and blind and deaf. Well, that's what Isaiah was doing. This is no prosperity message of a bed of ease in Zion. This is no message of your best life now and of a promise of health and wealth. He preaches, and he preaches, and he preaches, but there's no hearing. There's no response. There's no repentance. There's no clue. For if they did hear and see, they would turn to the Lord and be saved, but they do not. As, Je as Isaiah speaks a message of judgment to the people of his generation. And this is a tough message, so we understand why Isaiah will cry out in verse 11, How long, O Lord? How long do I have to keep preaching this way to an audience that doesn't listen? And we might think, well... Maybe until they repent, or preach until they return, or preach until they get their acts together, or preach only for a short time, and God says, no, 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 verse 11. Then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitants, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and, forsakes places, and, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tent remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. How long, O oh Lord, do I preach? You preach till the cities are ruined, till the land is destroyed, till the people are carried away in judgment. This is not a pleasant-sounding ministry. But that's what Isaiah was called to preach. And he did. And that's the background of Isaiah 6 that Matthew is referring to here. And in the day of Isaiah, the people did not listen. They did not repent. They did not turn back to the Lord. And so the whole first half of the book of Isaiah, chapters 1 to 39, says judgment is coming. And it ends that section with them being carried off in exile. That is the background that Jesus is referring to as we get to Matthew 13. The generation that was in front of Isaiah heard the preaching and did not turn. The generation that is in front of Jesus, to their great astonishment, they are told that they will be the fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah. What a shocking statement. Because it's a promise that the judgment continues. Now we turn back to Matthew 13. 
and you pick up the text in verse 15. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their eyes they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah, Isaiah preached to the people of his day. They didn't repent. Jesus, and then after him, the, the apostles will preach to the people of his day, and he's warning them about not repenting. And so the verdict is the same. Their hearts are dull. They're, they cannot hear. Their eyes cannot see. They close their eyes. It's as if they're the petulant child who doesn't want to listen to what his parent is saying, puts his hands over his ears, closes his eyes, and just, blah, 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 I'm not going to listen to what you're saying. It's not enough to see miracles or to hear good words. Many will still not believe. And it's been the same ever since. We recounted last week that the crowd saw Jesus and they were amazed. They marveled. They wondered. But they did not repent and believe. As Charles Spurgeon says, to this day, marvels of creation, works of grace, deeds of providence, ordinances of religion are all a voiceless music or painted suns to carnal men. They hear not their teaching. They feel not their power. And using the example of Isaiah chapter 6, Jesus is speaking judgment against this evil generation just as Isaiah did in his day. And what happened to the people of Jesus' generation? They did not repent, the Jewish leaders. They did not hear. And they were judged in 70 A.D. as their temple was destroyed, their city was sacked, and they were carried off into exile. Imagine being a that day, listening to the words of the Lord Jesus Christ saying that you will be the fulfillment of this prophecy. And then may our hearts cry out and say, oh God, give us ears to hear and eyes to see that we not succumb to the same fate. For a simple study of the history of the church, the history of God's people from beginning to our day is full of examples of God judging and disciplining his people. It is full of those who refuse to believe. It is full of those who hear and walk away. So my plea this morning, knowing that we missed out on a little sleep last night, is wake up. And if today you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. If today you know you are outside of the kingdom of heaven, do not delay to cry out to God to have mercy on you. If you've been somewhat blinded where you don't see what God is doing, or worse, you refuse to see them, now is the time to say, God, give me eyes to see, give me ears to hear, give me hearts to rejoice, give me wills to repent and believe. Learn from the example of Isaiah, as our Lord Jesus Christ warns the generation of his day, and then after with this very hard, hard message, but remember, coming from the lips of Jesus, we get to our third point where he refers to the blessed ones. So we remember a little bit who Jesus is and what he came to do. He's the son of God. He came to be the one truly God and truly man to bridge the gap that is between God and men. The forgiver of sins, the opener of eyes, the warmer of hearts. He came to save his people from their sins. He bears their burdens and their sorrows. He overcomes the effects of sin, which is separation and rebellion and sickness and brokenness. He said, I've come to build a church over which he is the head and under whose authority we are to walk and to work and to live. And now 
this very one has used the example of Isaiah 6 to explain the reasons of parables, speaking in terms of judgment, but also using parables to speak in terms of blessing. And so he turns to his disciples and he said, they are blessed for they see and hear. But blessed are your eyes, he said, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. Imagine how this would be of good news to those who heard it. Blessed are you. Imagine hearing those words from the lips of our Lord Jesus Christ. We can. If you bow before him and say, yes, I confess you as Lord and Savior, you can hear those words. Blessed are you. But this first audience to whom he said it, these disciples, they've already experienced some persecution. He has promised that they will experience more. And they've heard of what will happen to those who do not believe, and now they are blessed. It's the same word that is used in the Beatitudes of Matthew chapter 5. It's a promise of blessing and divine favor on those who are in good stead with God. So even as we think of blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be called sons of God. Here it's blessed are you. For your eyes they see, your ears they hear. In fact, in the Greek language, if you want to emphasize the importance of something, you put it at the beginning of the sentence. And that's what's happened here. We could literally translate this as, your eyes, blessed. They're blessed. Because those who have seen but did not believe will be judged and condemned. Your eyes, however, are blessed. You have seen the truths of God. You know the true nature of the kingdom of heaven. You know the meaning of salvation. You know the promise of being set free from sin. Your eyes are blessed. You've been made alive in Christ with a spiritual harvest that is producing more and more in your life as the kingdom of heaven is manifested more and more in your own life. Blessed are your ears, for they heard and responded and repented and believed. Yes, these first century disciples were truly blessed, especially in light of what our next point is, the righteous longing. The righteous longing. For truly I say to you, many prophets... And righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it. And to hear what you hear and did not hear it. We know the story of the people of God is there's always been a remnant that have stayed faithful to the Lord, who have believed His promises, who have lived for Him, though they not all of them saw the promises come to pass. For generations, the people of God, the righteous ones, could only long for what they would not see. Abraham didn't see and hear what these disciples saw and heard, but he longed for it. Moses didn't see and hear what these disciples saw and hear, heard, but he longed for it. Think of the list of the prophets, David and Isaiah and Hosea and Jeremiah, and all of them did not see or hear what these disciples were seeing and hearing, but they longed to. They knew by faith it would come one day, and blessed are the eyes of those in the time of Jesus who see it. The Apostle Peter, who would have been one of those blessed ones, captures well what would have been that longing. Listen to what he wrote in his first epistle. Chapter 1, verses 10 to 12. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating 
when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them, so that would be the prophets before, that they were not serving themselves but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach good news to you by the Holy Spirit from heaven, things into which the angels long to look. Peter recognizes his special privilege as the people of that generation that got to see and to hear what the prophets of old had longed to see and to hear. But it wasn't only just the prophets, it was the righteous from generation after generation. There's always been a group of people that have longed to see the salvation of God. They remain faithful to what God has promised. If you want to study later, look at Hebrews chapter 11, where we see a list of many of them who believed, who longed for to see the promise, but they didn't see what these men were able to see. Think of the example of Simeon, the example we sometimes refer to at Christmas time. Simeon, an old man who longed to see the salvation of God, goes into the temple one day and he sees the Christ child. And he takes the Christ child into his hands and what does he say? At last, just to paraphrase, at last, Lord, I get to behold the salvation of my God. That's the longing that the people had to see the salvation that came in Christ when Jesus says, blessed are you. Through the enabling power of God, the disciples saw and heard the secrets of God, and so they are called to hear, to see, and to rejoice, but woe are to those who refuse to hear the truth. So as we come to the end today, friends, I ask the question, have you seen the wonders of Jesus? Because we're going to make a bold statement here. As blessed as these disciples were, for they were given a great privilege, I believe that we who believe in Christ today are even more blessed. We're blessed because we have the full revelation of God that they didn't have. We're blessed because we have the indwelling spirit living within us. We're blessed because we have 2,000 years of answered prayer and of divine provision and of the advancement of the kingdom of God. Maybe we've not seen with the eyes of flesh, but we've seen with the eyes of faith. Do you recognize the blessings that you have today? To have a copy of God's word in your hands, to have heard the gospel, to be part of a family of God. And the Lord still desires to bless his people. Do we desire to be blessed by God? Do we desire the things of the Lord? Do we desire to be quick to respond and to repent and obey and be uh, quick to serve? Not to justify ourselves, but to recognize that in the presence of a holy God, all we have are his grace and his mercy and his provision. So he who has ears, let him hear. We need to hear. We need to ask Christ to give us ears to hear. We need to see. Parables are used for revelation and judgment, to illustrate the truth for those who see, to further blind those with eyes who cannot. Let us not be those like the generation of Isaiah. Let us not be those like the generation of Jesus. Let us not be those that we will hear about even next week as we talk about the parable of the weeds, claiming to be part of the church, but not actually in the true church. The preaching of the word continues to go out. We need to hear, and we need to receive, and we need to believe. When we tell others the Messiah has come, the kingdom is here. Do you see it? 
Next week, we're going to look at the parable of the weeds, where we'll be warned that the good seeds and the weeds are going to grow side by side, claiming to be part of the people of God, but the final judgment will reveal who is who. And so may the Lord prepare us for what we will see next week. But until that time, what are some lessons we can take away from today's sermon? If we're in Christ, we will rejoice that we were given eyes to see and ears to hear the truth of God and his kingdom. Go on your way just rejoicing for the great salvation that is yours in Christ. Let his praise be on your lips. Let his joy be in your heart as you continually just give thanks that you know Christ and that you're secure in him. Secondly, because our hearts are prone to be deceived, we ask the Lord to reveal truth to us and empower us to respond to it. We need the continual input from the Word. We need the ongoing guidance of the Spirit. We need the fellowship of the saints so we can walk in the truth. And then we have the same responsibility that the church has always had. Just as Isaiah warned his generation and Jesus warned his generation, we need to warn our generation to hear the truth and obey it, to proclaim boldly the truth of God without compromise, without fear. And because we are so blessed in Christ, so blessed, let us live thankful and obedient lives in his glory. How wonderful it is to hear these words, but blessed are your eyes for they see and your ears for they hear. And if we are in Christ today, we are blessed indeed. Let us pray. To you, O Lord, do we lift up our hearts, our souls, and our minds now, thankful that you are a good, compassionate, and lavish God. And we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the privilege we have to have your word in our hands, hidden in our hearts, written on our hearts by the power of your spirit. But Lord, we have so much more to know so much more to do and so much more to grow in and so much more to understand. And so, Lord, be our teacher this week. Guide us moment by moment through your word, the guidance of your spirit, that we will know your word more deeply and more richly, that we will obey you more fully, serve you more joyfully, live in a more holy manner for your glory because we love you and we want to please you. And so we commit ourselves to you anew and afresh, for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.